Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I wonder if any of you recognize these words. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. Does anybody know what this is from yet? Oh yeah, these are a few of my favorite things. So sings Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. So if you've seen that movie, you recognize those words. Now personally, my list would be a little bit different. It would include things like, I'm not going to sing it and I'm not going to rhyme it, but my list would include things like Granny Smith apples and strawberries and pineapples Melted cheese, the splintering of sun rays as they break through clouds, or lightning strikes in the sky, the appearance of a full moon, food that's grilling, uh, the feel of a cool sheet when you roll over in your sleep, hitting nothing but net on a basketball shot, the sound of a billiards break, which I know Brian can appreciate that. Bob Dylan's harmonica and hearing a baby giggle. Those are a few of my favorite things. And you all, no doubt, have your list of favorite things too because we all live in a world that's overflowing with pleasure. Now, it's true we live in a world that's full of pain, and there's no denying that, but that doesn't change the fact that pleasures of sight and sound, and smell, and touch, and taste, and feeling, and thought meet us and greet us at every turn. Pleasure, every bit as much as pain, is virtually impossible to avoid and escape in our world. And do you know why? Because our Creator God wanted it that way. Pleasure is God's idea. He created this world full of pleasure and placed us in that world so that we are surrounded with them. And it's because of that, because God has made a world of pleasure and surrounded us with them, that it's important for us to adopt a biblical view of pleasure and to know how we should respond to the pleasures that are all around us. It's important for us to adopt a biblical view of pleasure and know how we should respond to the pleasures that are all around us. And in order to help us do that, In order to help us adopt this view and to know how we should respond, we're going to go back to the beginning to discover pleasure principles from Eden in Genesis chapter 2. Pleasure principles from Eden in Genesis chapter 2. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open them to the second chapter of Genesis. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to locate one in uh, the bottom of the chairs in front of you. Again, we're going to be reading verses 8 through 17. So I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. 
The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Medellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, there are three principles for us to consider here when it comes to pleasure. Three principles to consider, and the first is this. Principle number one, affirm the lawfulness of pleasure and enjoy. Affirm the lawfulness of pleasure and enjoy. God intends for us to embrace and enjoy the blessings and the good things of creation. It's noteworthy that God doesn't create Adam and then place him in a garden full of dangerous and deadly enticements and command him to abstain from those things as an act of loyalty to him. In fact, he does almost the opposite. He places Adam in a garden full of all kinds of various pleasures and invites him to partake with enjoyment. This is very clear if you look closely at verse 9, where it says, Out of the ground, out of this earth, the things of this world, the Lord God made to spring up. The Lord God made to spring up. So this is God's idea and this is God's doing. And what is it that he made to spring up? Every tree that is, listen, pleasant to the sight and good for food. He made to spring up pleasures of sight and taste in the garden. And we also read that he brings forth things of beauty and value from the earth. Things like gold and bdellium and onyx stone. In verse 12. And then we read that God says to Adam in verse 16, You may surely eat from every tree in the garden. Not pick one and enjoy it. Eat from all of them. You're free to eat from every tree in the garden. Now we know there's a qualification to this, and we'll get there in a second. But notice that God isn't primarily restrictive of his people's pleasure in the world that he made. He's not primarily restrictive. Instead, he offers them all of these trees. Every tree in the garden, enjoy all of them. And so in light of this, we should foundationally affirm the lawfulness of pleasure and enjoy the blessings of creation. A distinction from those who would teach us that God actually frowns on any delight that his people would take in physical or material or created things. There are those who have taught and still do teach that the essence of being truly spiritual and the essence of spiritual growth is found primarily in abstaining from earthly pleasures. There are those who teach that to be truly spiritual or to grow spiritually, in essence, you have to renounce earthly pleasures. That is not the teaching of the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. Instead, the Bible affirms the goodness of the material world around us as the creation of God. And it affirms the lawfulness of pleasure and invites us 
to participate in those pleasures with enjoyment. The author C.S. Lewis perhaps says it very well. He says, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine. He's referencing communion there. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. And then he goes on to say this. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity taught that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves. But they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which believes that matter is good. That's the biblical view. And so dare I say that Christians, perhaps more than any other people, should celebrate life and should enjoy the good things of creation as gifts from their creator. Listen, God invites us to participate in the things around us. He invites us to enjoy music and dancing, good food and good drink. He invites us to enjoy birthday parties and holiday feasts like Thanksgiving. He invites us to enjoy swimming in pools and lakes and oceans and basking in the sun. He invites us to enjoy making snow angels and snowmen and snow forts and sledding to enjoy biking and hiking and climbing and lifting and running, participating in sports and playing games, laughing at jokes, frolicking and laughing with pets and animals, gardening and landscaping and pondering the majesty and glory of the things of the nature around us. He invites us to do these things because, after all, God himself delights in his creation. We're told one chapter before this in Genesis chapter 1 that when God finished creating all things, he pronounced it very good. And Psalm, the Psalms tell us in Psalm 104, 31 that God rejoices in his works. And so principle number one is for us to affirm, to affirm the lawfulness of pleasure and to enjoy. But as we apply this first principle, it's very, very important that we're also applying the second principle. And it's this, accept the limits of pleasure and obey. Accept the limits of pleasure and obey. God placed limits on Adam and Eve and on their pleasures in the garden. It's true that he didn't say, pick one tree and enjoy it, but instead, you are free to eat from every tree in the garden. But then we do read in verse 17 that God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You are free to eat from every tree except one. As Paul Tripp puts it, the pleasures of Eden were bountiful, but they were not boundless. Bountiful, but not boundless. And that's true of our world today, that the pleasures of our world are bountiful, but they are not boundless. God places limits on our pleasure. And these limits teach us several things. First of all, these limits are a reminder of God's rule. They are a reminder of God's rule. Our lives do not belong to ourselves and neither do our pleasures. We are not free to pursue and enjoy our pleasures in any way or at any time we want. Rather, we are to pursue our pleasures in complete submission and obedience to God who sets limits on those pleasures 
as the one who is our ruler. You are not made or created to obey or become mastered by your appetites or cravings for pleasure. You are made as a creature of God and your obedience belongs not to your pleasures, but your obedience belongs to him and to his word. And those limits remind us of that. But not only are these limits a reminder of God's rule, they are also an act of his protection. These limits are an act of his protection. Listen, if we reject the limits that God sets in place, then we're rejecting his word. And when we reject his word, we reject him. And when we reject him, we cut ourselves off from the source of true life. And so ignoring the limits to earthly pleasure can mean that we cut ourselves off from the source of true life by the pursuit of earthly pleasure. Jesus warns, of the, warns us of this when he's telling the parable of the sower. He's telling us of this danger in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, where Jesus teaches this. He says, And as for the seed that fell among the thorns, they are like those who hear the word, because that's what the seed represents. Okay, so they hear the word, but as they go on their way, as they live their life, even though they've heard the word, they've heard God ruling through his word, they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches, and listen, and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Pursuing pleasure in life, apart from God's limits, can choke us and rob us of spiritual life because pleasure is a powerful thing and if God's limits are ignored then those pleasures instead of being enjoyed and enhancing our lives actually become dangerous and destructive if we fail to operate joyfully and willingly within the limits that God places around our pleasures they will become damaging harmful to us And Paul alludes to this damaging potential of our pleasures in Titus chapter 3 when he talks about being foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. We can lose freedom and become in bondage, enslaved to passions and pleasures. Listen, refusing to accept the limits or boundaries that God has set on our pleasures, and obeying him will eventually lead us into suffering and pain. Rejecting God's boundaries will eventually lead us to suffering and pain. Whether that suffering is physical or emotional or social, it will eventually lead to suffering and pain and can lead to being controlled and dominated by our pleasures in addiction. Listen, we we all live in a culture that encourages us to pursue pleasure without limits and so this damaging potential of pleasure without limits is all around us the evidence is all around us as we witness and as we maybe even sometimes experience ourselves the physical and emotional and social damage caused by a pursuit of pleasure without limits we see it in sexual immorality we see it in sexual addictions and pornography and the social and physical and emotional ramifications of that. We see it in the indulgence of food and seeking pleasure through food, food addictions. And again, the physical and emotional and social ramifications of that. But not just food indulgence, the indulgence in alcohol, leading to alcoholism, 
drug abuse, substance abuse, chemical addictions, addictions to prescribed medication. These things are all around us, not to mention the financial consequences of being given to overspending and commitment to a life of excess. The evidence is all around us that to live life with no limits on our pleasures leads to suffering and pain and can produce bondage. And this shouldn't surprise us because when Adam and Eve disregarded God's limits in the garden, it didn't lead them to deeper enjoyment. It led them to experience pain and misery and death because that's what happens. Of course, Adam and Eve, thinking about that, should also help us to see that God sets these limits as a word of his warning. These limits are a word of his warning. You and I can be deceived by our desires and appetites for pleasure. And we can take Satan's bait. We can be deceived by our desires and our appetites for pleasure. And this was true even before the fall. Because Eve found the beauty and pleasantness of the sight of the trees and the goodness of the food to be seductive. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that Eve took of the forbidden fruit when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The truth is we can desire what will ruin us. We can crave what will kill us. What we think will satisfy us can actually end up destroying us. And the things that we think is jewelry can turn out to be chains. We can be deceived by our desires and our appetites. And if this was true even before the fall in the garden, how true is this now after the fall when we're dealing with the corruption and pollution of our own hearts? It's very clear from Scripture that we must not enjoy sin, the pleasure of sin that God has forbidden. Obviously not. But even things that are not sinful in themselves, not sinful in in themselves, like food, things like alcohol, things like medicine, sex, things not sinful in themselves, we must refrain from enjoying in the wrong way, or at the wrong time. We must not transgress those limits either. Even things that are lawful in themselves, we must not enjoy in the wrong way or at the wrong time. Instead, we have to trust and accept the limits on pleasure that God has set. The God who made us and knows what's good for us and the God who loves us. The God who loves us that he's reminding us of his rule, that he set these limits as an act of his protection and a word of his warning. We have to accept and obey. But more than this, it's not just about accepting and rendering obedience. There's a third principle to consider, and it's this. Acknowledge the Lord of pleasure and worship. Acknowledge the Lord of pleasure and worship. I said earlier that pleasure is God's idea, but God's intention for pleasure is to have it point to him and to have our earthly pleasures tell us something about him. Paul Tripp, I think, is right on when he writes this. You will never understand pleasure if you think that it is an end in itself. That is so important. 
You will never understand earthly pleasure if you think that it's an end in itself. Pleasure has a meaning beyond the momentary enjoyment it will give us. Pleasure exists to put God in my face, to stimulate worship, not of the thing itself, but of the one who created the thing. We should enjoy our pleasures, yes, but don't worship them. We worship the Lord of pleasure and only him. And in fact, it's only when our hearts are ruled by a higher pleasure that our earthly pleasures can be embraced and enjoyed without becoming damaging, without becoming a deceptive snare or a destructive idol in our heart, in our life. It's only when our hearts are ruled ultimately by a pleasure and delight in God himself that we remain free to enjoy our earthly pleasures. I want to make it very clear that I'm not at all suggesting this morning that life is all about pleasure. It's not. Life is not all about earthly pleasure. I want to affirm that pleasure is good, but it's not ultimate. There are times in this life where we have to consciously reject pleasure and embrace pain instead out of love for God. There will be times where we have to deny pleasure and embrace pain. Like we read about Moses doing in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 25 and 26. Moses tells us he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. In other words, he chose suffering rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And he did this because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt and he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking beyond the momentary moment. It's not all about earthly pleasure. Listen, if earthly pleasures are what you want most out of life, you've been conned and your soul is in danger. If earthly pleasure is what you want most out of life, you've been conned and your soul is in danger because boundless pleasure in earthly things doesn't exist by God's design. Boundless pleasure in earthly things doesn't exist by God's design. All pleasure in earthly things diminishes over time. We become familiar with them. We get tolerant of them. We can even become bored with them. And we think the answer might be to just get more and more of those earthly pleasures to fill up those empty spaces in our hearts and then we find ourselves in bondage and enslaved to our passions and to our pleasures. Because they will always diminish and leave us wanting. What we really want is a boundless pleasure that rather than diminishing over time, actually increases over time. Right? Wouldn't that be great? To find a pleasure that rather than diminishing over time, actually increases over time. The problem is, such a pleasure doesn't exist on earth. There's only one source for that pleasure, and it's not anything on earth. It's God himself, the boundless one, and the one to whom all of our earthly pleasures are pointing us. This is what led Jonathan Edwards to write this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams 
but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. There is something to our earthly pleasures, right? But they're pointing us to the fullness and fulfillment in God alone. Our earthly pleasures are pointing us to God. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote this. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. The source and fulfillment of all of our earthly pleasures are found in heaven with the Lord. Because all of our earthly pleasures are signs pointing us to him. And so don't mistake the sign for the thing that it's pointing to. How foolish would that be? One of the things that our family likes to do every summer is to make a trip to Great Wolf Lodge, which is a water park in Mason, Ohio. And after spending some time in the car, it's always exciting to see signs to Great Wolf Lodge. But how foolish would it be to stop right there at the sign, unpack our things, and spend two days there at the sign instead of going on to Great Wolf Lodge? It's a sign pointing us to something else. Or maybe another way we could put it, how foolish would it be to allow the foretaste to cause you to miss the fullness of the banquet? How foolish would that be to let the foretaste cause you to miss the fullness of the banquet? And so what does that mean? What would this look like? Well, the next time you take a bite out of an apple or a pineapple or some kind of food that you love, enjoy it. Yes, it's good and right to enjoy it. But be in awe of the God who made things like apples and pineapples sprout out of the ground. Isn't that amazing? That something as good as a pineapple can grow out of the ground. And if you don't like pineapples, just substitute your own fruit. It's amazing. Be in awe of the God who can do that. The next time you're moved by music, praise the source of melody and harmony. The next time you walk or the next time you run, or the next time you participate in an athletic event, or the next time you watch an athletic event, ponder all the physiological complexity that has to happen in order for those simple things to occur, and rejoice in the God who made and designed the human body. Worship the Lord of pleasure. Acknowledge the Lord of pleasure and worship him. And remember that the foretaste, just as the foretaste gives us something of the banquet, so also our earthly pleasures do tell us something about our creator. They tell us something about the Lord of pleasure. Every true and pure and joy-giving pleasure finds its ultimate origin and fulfillment in our God. It finds its ultimate source and fulfillment in him. The psalmist seemed to recognize this when David writes in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let earthly pleasures point you to eternal pleasures in the presence of God and at his right hand. And you know what's at the right hand of God, right? We know what's at the right hand of God. Or maybe to say it better, we know who is at the right hand of God. It's Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so listen, eternal and lasting pleasures are available to you through the person of Jesus 
and the joy and salvation he brings. The one who is at the right hand of the Father at which there are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there are lasting and eternal pleasures available to you through Jesus? Because the truth is, we're all pleasure seekers. Everyone in here, we're all pleasure seekers because God made us that way. The only question we have to ask ourselves is, where are we ultimately seeking those pleasures? Are we ultimately seeking to find fulfillment in earthly things and asking them to do what they can never do, which is to satisfy and fill our hearts and to give us life? Earthly pleasures can never do that. Only God can do that. And so look to him by faith in Jesus. And if you do that, you can affirm the lawfulness of pleasure and enjoy with freedom the blessings of creation because you'll also accept the limits of pleasure and obey and you'll acknowledge the Lord of pleasure, Jesus himself, and worship him who is greater and higher than all earthly pleasures and your heart will find satisfaction in him in this life and in the uninterrupted joys of the life to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for a world full of pleasure. We thank you for the gifts of your grace that surround us, but we ask for your forgiveness that we often transgress your limits. We don't accept the boundaries that you place on our earthly pleasures. We stop at the sign. And we don't move forward to you, the ultimate source and fulfillment. So would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to look to you and to you above all things to fill our hearts and to give us life, to satisfy us with the pleasures that are in Jesus at your right hand forevermore. For we ask in his name, amen.